0: Well, uh, there is a lot there to unpack in those seven verses uh, from the prophecy of Isaiah. And yet, uh, bear with me, we are going to just skip over most of that. I wanted you to hear it because it's helpful context. But our focus this morning, as with last Sunday morning and the next couple of weeks to come, our focus is on the titles, the four titles that Isaiah gave prophetically, to the messianic Savior who was to come, the one that we now know by the name of Jesus, or Yeshua. So last week, we talked about what it means for Jesus to be to us and for us a wonderful counselor. That means this Sunday, we're on to title number two in Isaiah's list here. What does it mean for us to know Jesus as mighty God? Mighty God. That's an incredible title for us to think about and contemplate this morning. So that's our focus, and uh, you can kind of set aside all the other stuff there that Isaiah mentions by way of context, and just focus in with me on these two words, mighty God. Now, I will say, right, Isaiah is describing a time of joy, A time of joy. And so part of the broader context here uh, for us to recognize and appreciate is that with the coming of the Messiah, God intended to bring great joy, great hope, great peace, great love to his people. These are the themes of Advent. I want to just begin with a way, uh, something that may bring a little smile to your face this morning uh, by way of joy. Uh, I have a few jokes for you. And this is unusual, I don't usually begin this way, but um, you'll understand why I'm doing this in just a moment. Uh, These are good news, bad news jokes that are specifically written for pastors. Now, you're not all pastors, but hopefully you can understand and relate, uh, and I think you'll appreciate a few of these. Just a short list. The good news is, you baptized seven people today in the river. The bad news is, you lost two of them in the swift current. Good news, the Women's Guild voted to send you a Get Well card. Bad news, the vote passed 31 to 30. Good news, the elder board accepted your job description just the way that you wrote it. Bad news, they were so inspired by it that they also formed a search committee to find somebody capable of filling the position. (laughs) Good news, You finally found a choir director who approaches things exactly the same way you do. Bad news, the choir mutinied. Good news, Mrs. Jones is wild about your sermons. Bad news, Mrs. Jones is also wild about the gong show, Beavis and Butthead, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those are shows from the 80s, in case some of you are wondering. Good news, your women's softball team finally won a game. Bad news, they beat your men's softball team in a scrimmage. (laughs) And one more for good measure. Good news, church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks. Bad news, you were on vacation. (laughs) Hey, I'm going to try my best here uh, to bring the Word of God in a way that um, compels you to want to be here and hear it. And to that end, I want to share really a good news, bad news introduction to this message, this title. Here it is. Are you ready? The good news is that we have a mighty God. The bad news is that we need a mighty God. We need a mighty God. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, that's not funny. I know, it wasn't meant to be. The funny ones were just a lead up to the, the really serious one. One of the great challenges in life as a follower of Jesus Christ is, is breaking out of our self-reliance and embracing our desperate need for a, the power of God, the power of God to be demonstrated in and through our lives. So that's what I want to zero in with you on this morning. We all know and believe that God is powerful, but the problem is that we often fail to recognize or remember how powerless we are apart from Him. This is the the humanistic pride that characterizes the basic human condition, and particularly here in the good old United States of America where self-reliance is a way of life. Generally speaking, we are people who don't like to acknowledge our weaknesses. Are you with me? Anybody have this trouble like I do sometimes? We don't like to acknowledge our weaknesses, but acknowledging our weaknesses is critical to experiencing the power of God, and we'll talk more about that a bit later. So what I want you to think about here right out of the gate this morning is that God is not like semi-retired. You know, he's not up in heaven kind of kicking back on the throne, just relaxing, chilling out. And, it, you know, it's, it's not like the Miracle Max, right, and the Princess Bride who's like, um, no, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I'm, I'm not doing miracles anymore. No. God is still in the miracle business. He he still does signs and wonders. He still demonstrates his power in people's lives. So what I'm really aiming for this morning is not just, you know, some increased intellectual understanding of God's power. What I want to do is to stir your faith in a mighty God. I'm not I'm not going to be content with just a little bit more information. I'm aiming for a revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit that will produce greater faith in our lives to see God's power move on our behalf. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Let me share with you a story that I hope will just lay the foundation of expectation by faith. Just a simple example of how God's power is still at work in dynamic and amazing ways. This is a story from a missionary named Ian Hall, and he was ministering in Romania uh, about 15 years ago or so, and it's the story of his interaction with a woman named Christina, whom he met during a crusade where he was preaching. He writes, in March of 1992, Christina was in the hospital with an ectopic pregnancy. Before she learned she was pregnant, The fetus died and began to decompose in her body. Christina was not expected to live. My wife, Sheila, and I went to the hospital to pray for Christina, and God healed her. Still, in their attempts to save her life, doctors removed most of her uterus and one ovary. They told her that she would never be able to bear children again. Christina's strength returned, and by May, she was back in church. I was holding another series of meetings there, and she and her husband, Stefan, came forward for prayer. A good idea. Come forward for prayer. (laughs) Will you pray that God would give us a child? They asked. Knowing Christina's diagnosis, they were hoping to adopt. So I began to pray. But suddenly, I found myself prophesying. In one year, You will stand in this place holding a son born of your own body. That takes a little courage, doesn't it? Why did you say that? Sheila asked me later. You know she can't bear children. You've really put yourself out on a limb. I knew my predicament all too well. The words that came from my lips had astonished everyone, including me. That year, I returned to the area from time to time, but Stefan and Christina said nothing of a baby. Although I was troubled at first, in time I stopped thinking about the prophecy. Then in May of 1993, I was conducting services again in the, uh, the Kimpulung Church. The pastor announced that a baby would be dedicated and informed me that I was to pray for the child. But as I surveyed the audience... I couldn't see anyone with a baby. Then, from the farthest corner of the church, I saw Stefan and Christina approaching, holding the son that had been born to them six weeks earlier. As with Hannah of the Bible, they had received their promise and they had named him Samuel. What a story! What a story! things like this still happen. The mighty God we serve, the mighty God we believe in, still does miraculous things. So let me press in with you on this title that Isaiah gives to the coming Messiah. And let's think about what it means to recognize and embrace Jesus as our mighty God. So first and foremost, I want you to think about the second part of this title, the second word, God. This title, Mighty God, affirms the deity of this messianic baby that Isaiah foretold. Now stop and think about that, because what I've just said should strike us as as something unusual, something crazy, something out of the box something almost incomprehensible. I spoke last week as I introduced this passage about the historic context in which Isaiah prophesied. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, uh, reviewing ground that we've already covered. But but I think it does help here to bear in mind one simple fact about this passage um, describing a messianic figure whom God would send among his people as a little baby. Speaking of babies. Namely, I want you to consider that these words that Isaiah spoke and wrote were delivered 700 years before the birth of Jesus took place. 700 years prior to the event that they spoke of. Now, if I can just give you a little historic parallel here to help you think about that in context. Imagine That 700 years ago from our day, William Wallace of Braveheart, yes, of Braveheart, that's about the time, 700 years ago, he died in the year 1305, imagine that William Wallace had prophesied about a future ruler of America and his description seemed to point directly to Donald Trump. How crazy would that be? In fact, what if he foretold the arrival of a great ruler of this nation of America that was, you know, yet to exist, and he said that the ruler would be called the Donald and the Great Disruptor? Imagine that William Wallace wrote those words 700 years ago, and we were now reflecting back on them and their fulfillment. That would be an amazing prophetic insight, foresight, from 1300 to the present time. But beyond the amazing fact that Isaiah spoke these words that long before Jesus came to fulfill them, what's even more remarkable about Isaiah's words is the title, particularly this one, Mighty God, being used of a baby. Think about it. He wrote of a baby to be born who would become a great ruler on the throne of David, and then he threw down these incredible titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now just park here with me for a minute and think about the incredible paradox that's described and explained in these words how on earth could a baby be called mighty god a baby perhaps again you know to many of us it doesn't sound all that strange or unusual because we're used to thinking this way about jesus We've become so used to thinking about Jesus this way that it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't surprise us. But bear in mind that 700 years ago, this idea was completely unheard of. Completely unheard of. And that is so precisely because any good Jew would have known full well that there's only one God in all the universe and he is the one that created the universe. So how could he be a baby? It doesn't make sense. God, El, as the Hebrews referred to him, one of the most common names for God in the Hebrew Bible, uh, how could he be described as being born in the form of a baby? To quote one of my favorite Francis Chan phrases, if you've heard any Francis Chan messages, Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? How could this happen? How could this work? This is crazy. God, a baby? The prophet must have misspoke. Or perhaps this is a grammatical error in the text. It's not possible. God couldn't possibly become a baby. Could he? Are you kidding me? But you see, my friends, this is one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies that points to a mystery that Christian theologians nowadays commonly refer to as the incarnation, the incarnation, which is just a fancy word, theological word for describing what another less intellectual friend of mine refers to as God in a bod. So what Isaiah is saying here was either crazy or it was a groundbreaking revelation from heaven that no man could have ever come up with on his own. This is a crazy idea. Make no mistake about it. Isaiah meant what he said. And he said what he meant. God intended to stoop down from heaven, take on human form, and actually be born as a baby. Now, some people take issue with this, still take issue with this. They don't buy it. Like, for example, uh, one of the commentaries I came across uh, regarding this passage um, was confronting the, the, the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses who contend that Jesus was just one of many little gods with a lowercase g, not the God with a capital G. And so they would even argue, using this very passage, that the term mighty is used instead of the term almighty, and that there's an important distinction there. This couldn't be describing the almighty God, because he's only mighty, not almighty Craziness. It's craziness. The text is very clear that the baby to be born is the mighty God. In fact, if you doubt whether that's true at all, I can quickly put this idea to rest. If you just look with me one chapter further into Isaiah, in Isaiah 10, 20 and 21, Isaiah uses the exact same title and terminology to refer to God himself with a capital G. Here it is. Listen to this. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. There it is again, the same title, one chapter later, clearly referring to the Mighty God with a capital G. So the plain truth is you can't point to Isaiah 9, 6 to refute the idea that Jesus is God incarnate. If anything, this text proves the idea. It actually confirms the crazy notion that this was God's idea to begin with. This was God's plan from the beginning. In the wisdom of God, he meant for things to go down just as they did. He actually meant to become one of us so that his plans for all of us could be accomplished. So it shouldn't then completely surprise us that when Jesus shows up, he's almost stoned on multiple occasions for blasphemy because he identifies himself with the Father. I mean, think about this. Do you remember what happened the first time Jesus is uh, recorded in the Gospels as of, of standing up to give a, a message? He's at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Hometown synagogue, Nazareth. He shows up, they invite him, to read the scroll. He takes the scroll from the attendant, opens it up to the passage for the day. Oh, what a coincidence. Happens to be Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, another one of Isaiah's famous messianic prophecies. So Jesus stands up, he reads the scroll, and the way Luke tells it, after he reads it, hands the scroll back to the attendant, sits down, I don't know, that was their custom, I guess, sits down, And then he says to the audience, everyone listening, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here I am. I'm the one. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has arrived. So that, my friends, is only one example among several which indicate to us that Jesus understood himself to be the anointed one whom the prophets had spoken of and whom God had promised to send. Now, there are other people, of course, uh, to this day, who still don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. They want to believe that he was a good teacher They want to believe that he was perhaps even a prophet, a great prophet, or just another great man, but no more than a great man, certainly not a God-man. So the issue then at stake here, as we think about this title, is the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. It's one of the critical dividing lines that separates those who follow Jesus and identify their lives as in Christ from those who don't. This is where Christianity parts company with every other religion on the face of the earth, including the great monotheistic traditions of Judaism and Islam. We alone, among all the religions on the face of the earth, declare that Jesus is the Mighty God. So, to put it to you plainly, what we believe and declare is that there is indeed only one true and living God, the same El or Elohim of the Hebrew Scriptures. However, we believe and declare that by His own grand design and according to the wisdom of His plan for our redemption, God exists in three. Persons or manifestations. He's God the Father, God the Son, known as Yeshua or Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And what we celebrate then in the birth of Christ is not just another birthday, as if it matters how old Jesus is. What we celebrate is the incredible revelation that the God of the universe would allow himself to be born as a baby. It's amazing. I don't know if you've ever really contemplated how crazy this is, but um, I I was inspired a couple weeks ago, I was watching a movie with my kids and uh, just, you know, came out, Um, we didn't go to see it in the theaters, but at home we were watching Ant-Man and the Wasp, a rather entertaining story about a few uh, superheroes, maybe some of you have seen the movie, I won't ask for a show of hands if you're embarrassed to admit it, but... um, It's one of those uh, fascinating movies where a man has the superpower of becoming the size of an ant. Now, bear in mind here that he still maintains the body and the mind of a human being. So he's just ant size, and he wears a nice little ant costume. He hasn't really become an ant. He's just a little smaller than he was before. What I'm trying to get you to think about here with me is the way that God steps down from heaven and becomes one of us and what that looks like, what that means. And so by way of analogy here, I want you to consider the possibility that one of us could actually become an ant. How crazy would that be? Now, I know it stings the ego a little bit to think of it this way uh, because You know, we don't like to think of ourselves uh, in relation to another being as an ant is in relation to a person, right? Because that would force us to be really humble about the fact that somebody is a whole lot greater than we are. We're not used to seeing ourselves in that role. But this is a compelling idea. In fact, it's not an idea that's original to me. I found a story uh, from well-known preacher Tony Campolo, using this very same analogy. In fact, here's the story that he told. He said, imagine a man who loved ants. Out behind his house, he has an anthill. And every day, he goes out and yells at the ants, I love you! I love you! I love you! Now, of course, the ants never get the message since they're ants and he's a human. And humans can't communicate with ants by shouting at them. So the man does something more than just shout. Each day, he would bring them sugar and pieces of bread and other goodies to enjoy. And as as the ants devoured these good things, he would yell at them again. They're from me! They're from me! I love you! I love you! Still, the ants didn't get the message. But in this make-believe story, the man has magical powers. And he's able to transform himself into anything he wants to be. So what he wanted to be must seem by now all too obvious. To communicate with the ants, there was only one thing to do, transform himself into one of them. So he did that. He became one and went in among them And then he told all the ants about the goodness of the great man who had hovered over them. He told them how much the man really loved them. The other ants could not help but be curious, and they asked him, How come you know so much about this man? To which this special ant replied, Because I am that man. I became one of you because only by becoming one of you Could I communicate how much I care for you and let you know what I'm really like? Do you recognize the story that I'm telling? Jesus came to show us what God is really like, to tell us what God is really like, how much he loves us. And there are plenty of things that Jesus did to demonstrate that reality, but they could only be received and understood because he had become one of us. Now, uh, that's just a few thoughts about the title, God, which is given to this little baby, Isaiah foretold. But now think with me for a few minutes about the mighty part of this title mighty God. As our mighty God, Jesus wields the strength and power of God to impact our lives for the better. This isn't just some abstract title with no real purpose behind it. Jesus isn't mighty just for the sake of being mighty, as if that's the way God should be. The might and power of God and demonstrated in and through the life of Jesus was for the purpose of impacting the lives of human beings. So Jesus wields the strength and power of God to impact our lives for the better. That's what matters most about this title, Mighty God and the attributes that go with it. Now we have to think really carefully here because I think personally, if there's a common complaint among us about God, it's most likely that we wish we could see and experience his power more often. Anybody with me there? Come on now. Anybody? Really? I'm looking. Anybody wish that you saw God's power moving more often? Thank you. I sure do. But here's the truth about God's power, even when we don't see it. Just because we don't see it, whenever we'd like to, doesn't mean that it isn't there or that it isn't real. You see, one of the foundational characteristics that makes God worthy of our worship is what's, again, to use another theological term, called God's omnipotent omnipotence. Here again, of course, I'm quoting the theologians. So let me put this word in layman's terms for you. Um, Omnipotence is the quality of having unlimited or absolute power. And the only being, the only person, if you will, to use the term loosely, in the universe that has that is God. No one else is omnipotent like he is. So this is what's meant then by the term mighty with a capital M. This is a title, not just an adjective. This is a title that's given to the messianic figure who was to be born as a baby. And so he uses it here. Okay, thank you. He uses this phrase, Isaiah, as a title. And in this case, uh, as in other cases, both whether you use the term mighty or the term almighty, it's not just an adjective, it's an attribute, an attribute of God. It's what makes God unique in comparison to everyone and everything else because no one else is like he is. So let's consider then how the power of God was demonstrated in and through the life of Jesus specifically. Because what I'm submitting to you, what I'm trying to connect for you here, is that the baby who was to be born and who would be called Mighty God is the one we now recognize as Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One. Now, when it comes to the power of Jesus, I've been thinking about this a lot, had some conversations with different people recently about the power of the Lord and how it works or doesn't work in our lives, what helps it to work more effectively. It's a fascinating thing to think about. There are actually 135 verses in the New Testament that refer to the concept of power. 135. That's way too many for us to cover, uh, even in a whole series of messages. So I'm not going to try to go into all the intricacies of this word and what it means and uh, all, all the, you know, the, the different ways in which it's used. But of those, what I want you to consider is that the vast majority of them are used in reference to the power of God specifically, not the power of someone or something else. And for the sake of time, I want to give you a little sampling of how this term, power, is used to describe the life and ministry of Jesus specifically. So, in other words, what we're looking at here together is how and why Jesus is to be considered the mighty God. So, let's start with creation. Jesus was there when creation happened. You might think, you know, we're just talking about the Jesus that was born and lived as a man. But before that, the scriptures tell us he was with God and that he had a a role in creation creation. Listen to these words from Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. That takes a little power, don't you think? Romans 1.20, Paul puts it this way, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So the power of God is on display in creation. And it points us specifically to the hand of Jesus. But then, let's go a little further. The incarnation, we talked about this a little bit already. God's power was displayed when he stepped down from heaven to become one of us. We've talked about this a bit already, but let me refer you just one example. Let me refer to you to, to Luke 1.35. This is the story of Gabriel's appearance to Mary. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit... Will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It was an act of God's power that enabled Mary, a virgin, to bear this messianic baby. Then there's the kingdom ministry of Jesus. Perhaps this is the most frequently noticed and and marveled at characteristic of Jesus' life and ministry, how he consistently demonstrated the power of God to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to deliver people from bondage. On this point, there are numerous examples, and yet all of them, every powerful act, point to a common purpose, which was to demonstrate the presence of God's kingdom and to bring God's rule to bear against the kingdom of darkness, to destroy the works of the devil. So, for example, we see Jesus described as doing great signs and wonders, and people marvel frequently at the power and authority that he demonstrates in his ministry. And then, looking back on it all in hindsight, here are the words of Peter. He said, in speaking to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, you know what's happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So the power of God is at work in the life of Jesus, healing the sick, delivering the oppressed, and destroying the works of the devil, the power of the devil. Then, let's move on to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Anything powerful at work there? Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So in his death, Jesus overcame with his power the power of God's adversary, the devil. And then Romans 1:14, 1 1, or 1-1-4, I'm sorry, of course, um, talks about the resurrection and the power of God demonstrated there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul recognized that the power, the mighty power of God was supremely displayed in the resurrection of Jesus. Two more. I'm trying to hustle through these. Two more examples of different ways in which the power of God was demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus. Here's a good one. Revelation and salvation. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So God holds the power to save us from our sins. He wields the power. Jesus wields the power of God to deliver us from sin and death. And then finally, though it hasn't happened yet, but it is described as an aspect of the ministry of Jesus, think about the promised return, the second coming of Jesus in power, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So, so there you have it. This is a short list of six different categories in which the power of God has been clearly displayed in and through the life and ministry of Jesus for the benefit of mankind. And that, that leaves only one final aspect that we're going to touch on with the, the last few minutes we have this morning. One final aspect of God's power at work, in and through Jesus, that's critical for us to consider. His power at work, now at work, in us. In us and through us for the sake of the world around us. So here's here's where I want to land the plane this morning. By way of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the mighty God, now offers us His mighty and godly power. It's offered to all who follow Him. By way of the Holy Spirit, Jesus offers the power of God to those who follow Him. So, what the Gospels make clear to us, and the epistles as well, is that as followers of Jesus, we've received the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit comes the power, the mighty power of God himself. This means we have constant access to the power of God. It resides now within us by way of the Holy Spirit. But that power is only released for us to use for God's purposes. It's not like we can just you know, go out and do a bunch of magic tricks just for fun, right? It's not like we can just use the power of God to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it because we think it's fun or because we want to get attention or, or you know, stuff like that. The power of God has to be used for the purposes of God. And there are specific guidelines that Scripture gives us about how to use it. So let me give you a few hints in closing this morning, a few biblical insights about how the power of God could be experienced and displayed more consistently in and through our lives. Here's the first one. If you want to experience more of God's mighty power, step into serving and speaking as his witnesses to the world around you. Acts 1, verse 8, the promise of Jesus to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's a great promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, but it's power for a purpose, so that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts 14.3 is a, uh, a significant uh, validation of this promise, an example of the fulfillment of it in the early church. Acts 14.3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, this is in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So they spoke the message of grace, and then God confirmed the message with signs and wonders. An important thing here is to note the order of those events. I was watching another movie recently, a little more spiritual one than the others I've already referenced. Uh, It's called The Finger of God, Part 2. just came out last week. And uh, one of the quotes from the movie that really jumped off at me, uh, one of the speakers said, you know, many people like to think something like this. God, God, if only you'd give me more power, then I'd be more bold and more courageous in in sharing my faith with people. And he said, you know, unfortunately, that's not the way God works. He said, God does this instead. He says, when you step out, then I'll back you up with more power. I'm not going to give you the power first. You have to step out as my witness and then the power will come to back you up. Why would God want to do it that way? Because it reveals our hearts. God doesn't want us to become infatuated with experiences of his power. He wants us to be in love with him and to honor him, to serve him, to glorify him in everything. It's not about us doing something great and marvelous and getting attention for it so that we become the great healer, the great, you know, deliverer, whatever. It's about honoring him. He wants us to consistently walk in faith depending on him. So that's hint number one. You have to consistently seek to serve and speak as a witness to Jesus if you want to experience more of his power. Here's a second one, just quickly. If you want to experience more of God's mighty power, always use it. In ways that glorify him instead of you. These are all interrelated, of course. I think here of Ephesians 3 20 and 21, the great prayer of Paul. It's really like a benediction almost, where he says, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. You catch the order of of events as they're described there by Paul? God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine according to his power at work within us for the sake of his own glory. That's what it all comes back to. God is not interested in us being glorified by the use of his power. He wants Jesus to be glorified. So, for example, then, in Acts 8, there's this story of um, Simon, the sorcerer, a great example of how not to seek the power of God. For some time, he had practiced sorcery in the city of um, uh, Ephesus, I think it was where they were, and amazed all the, actually Samaria, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and they exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. And now if you skip down to verse 18, here's where where we hit the rub. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What's at work? What's at play here? Simon's mentality cultivated for a long time by his reputation as the great power of God, was to get the recognition and the glory for himself. He wanted the power of God so that he could, you know, see great things happen and then he would receive the attention. Doesn't work that way. And what he earned, instead of receiving any power, what he earned was a firm rebuke from the Apostle Paul. So God is able and willing to grant power to people, but he never gives his power to those who don't want it or to those who want it for the wrong reasons. And that brings me, last but not least, to one final insight here. If you want to experience more of God's power, mighty power, walk in humility, recognizing your own need and weakness. 1 Corinthians 2 3 to 5 I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling Paul says my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power Paul that's Paul we might not think of him this way but he was an incredible man of humility and weakness he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12 9 and 10 trying to get rid of the thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. He prays three times for deliverance from this thing. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. See, Paul understood. Said, so that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I want to close this morning with one more story. But it's not a story that I'm going to tell because I have a friend here this morning that could tell this story much better than I ever could. I've only heard it, but it would be um, third-hand for me to relay it to you, or second-hand at least. Let me invite my friend Dan to come. Um, Dan is a good friend and brother, part of the Lansing Vineyard, our sister church, and a prayer partner of mine. And Dan had a recent experience of God's power that I think you're going to enjoy hearing about. Let it serve as an inspiration to press in. Hi.
1: Hi. So, I'm doing a remodel on my home. Hello, everybody. Good to be with you. Thank you, Jesus, for gathering us in your name. I loved, as we prayed um, Friday together, Kevin and I, for what he was going to be sharing today about the power of God. Um, I, I just felt compelled to accept his invitation to share this story. It's, I've only shared it just a couple of times, and uh, just recently... I was doing construction with my brother at my home. And I went up onto my garage roof and invited him to join me. And he said, well, I really don't do roofs. And so he began to come up this ladder, and the ladder slipped. And he fell and crushed his elbow. Required four hours of surgery to repair it and he when he fell he hit his head back on the pavement and bounced up and went into a seizure and his first of all his 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 arm is flailed out right three broken ribs and he's just in incredible pain so the ladder's on the <laughs> on the ground and I'm looking at what's going on and fortunately, I had another ladder section on the roof. And so by the time I got down, my brother was, if, you ever, if you've ever seen one in a, anyone in a grand mal seizure, they're violently shaking, okay, with this broken arm. He's violently shaking. And then his eyes went this big, and he couldn't breathe. And it, So by the time I got down in front of him, He was. I thought I had killed my brother for sure, and uh, <clears throat> so then he completely quit breathing. His eyes wide open, um, maybe ten seconds or so, and in this moment is the reason for the the telling of the story is, apart from me, I felt the presence of the power of God. And I knew, you know, as I was calling on the Lord, it was like the Lord was calling through me, because the Holy Spirit and his power are in us, and especially in the time of need. I had no preparation, right, But I prayed in the spirit, and I called him back. I said, Tim, come back. In Jesus' name, Tim, come back. And he began to breathe again. And, you know, I really do believe the purpose of this miracle is for his salvation. Let me tell you the rest of the story. So we called 911. Got him to the hospital, and I'm there at his side for five or six hours waiting for surgery. And just before he went into surgery, he says, Dan, I went somewhere. He says, I I, I remember I was cold, and all of a sudden I was really warm. I was really comfortable. I was super warm and i looked up and i saw the most beautiful clear blue sky and i stood up and i looked around at creation he didn't call it creation i looked around at nature it like it you know it, i'm interpreting it's it's like it's supposed to be you know god created it right the way it's supposed to be and in in heaven in the heavenly realm i'm sure that's the way it is Anyway, he said, I I saw this glorious creation, and then all of a sudden, there I am looking at you, and I'm cold again. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, when the medics came, paramedics came, and when I talked with the doctors at the hospital, I said, the man had a seizure, and he quit breathing. I, I, I don't know what the extent of his injury was but he was bad, bad way and so they did an MRI there's zero impression there was no impression of there having been any kind of seizure no impression of ha- him having a concussion, nothing so when we need him all in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground this morning.